Ray Ortland says this regarding this passage. And before I read the passage, I want to just give you this quote from Ray. He says this, It is always a temptation to neglect the private inward service for the sake of the public outward service. Jesus called this inversion of priorities hypocrisy. Our Father sees and rewards in the secret place. It is our love of appearances, our need to make an impression, which neglects that secret place. Now as we read from Matthew 6, verses 1 to 6 this morning, bear that in mind. Bear that in mind. Verse 1, Jesus says this, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who sees in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to come together to sit under the teaching, the encouragement and the correction and instruction of your word. And Father, I would pray as we consider not just this topic of prayer, but, but of inward devotion to you from the heart, I would pray and ask that you would this morning bring conviction, that you by your Spirit would bring encouragement, and that you by your Spirit would give us instruction. Father, may you move amongst us this morning and accomplish all of these things that we may have a greater, deeper, richer and broader perspective and understanding of who you are and what you require of your disciples, of your children, as we seek to worship you. And Father, we are acutely aware of our own shortcomings. We've just been praying about those things that we struggle with and battle with. Father, we are all too aware of the temptation that we have within us to go through all of the religious hoops even with good intentions, even with good motives, but we are so prone to neglecting you in private prayer and worship. Father, I am guilty of this and you know that. But I pray as we spend time this morning talking through this, listening to your word and considering these truths that you would make us all the more desirous to eradicate this hypocrisy from our lives that we would drive out the, the self-will, the, the autonomy from our spirits and souls, that we would not be men, women and children who run in their own strength, but that we would do all that we do first and foremost on our knees in prayer before you. Father, may you do this work in our hearts today and may we leave here changed all the more. Father, we are aware that you are desirous and very active at changing us into the image of, of your Son. We consider his testimony. We consider his life while he was here on earth with us. A man given over to prayer. The very Son of God bending the knee to you, Father, seeking strength, seeking grace, seeking provision. Father, may we follow his example and may you continue to make us more and more like your Son. And Father, as this world gets its claws into us all the more, as persecution arises, as dif difficulties come our way, and trials of various kinds enter into our lives, may we not battle in our own strength. May we not run here and run there, but may we first and foremost get on our knees and seek you for strength and grace and patience to respond in a way that is pleasing to you. We want to thank you for this time. We pray, Lord God, that you might encourage us this morning. In Jesus' precious name, we pray these things. Amen.
Amen. Well, as I said a moment ago, Jesus is here teaching his wonderful disciples, those whom he will eventually bleed and die for on the cross. And his desire is for them, as it is for us, that we would be worshippers who worship in spirit and in truth. And he is aware of this, that there is, uh, for each and every one of us, a fatal trap that lays before us, a terrible danger that is just ahead of us, and that is this, that we can too easily focus on externals and neglect that inner worship. Our dear brother this morning, as he talked through the whole concept of giving, talked about the fact that the Lord loves a cheerful giver, that even giving is an act of worship, but it must be accompanied by an inner heart motivation. The same is true with prayer. The same is true with prayer. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, It is a terribly easy matter to be a minister of the gospel and a vile hypocrite at the same time. And you scratch your head and think, well, how does that ever happen? Well, all you have to do is keep doing what you do each week and neglect that inner worship, that inner life of prayer before the Lord. That's how it happens. And you do that long enough and you end up being a hypocrite And we see that all the time, don't we? Pastors fall. People get caught in sin. You and I at times can get caught in sin. And it happens when there is this discrepancy between what we do externally and what we do internally. You see, it's so easy to get caught up in a religious system where we run here and we do this and we do that and we neglect that personal devotional time with the Lord in prayer. You'll notice that phrase right there in verse 1. Jesus talks about practicing your righteousness. He doesn't mean there that this is a hypocritical, pharisaical thing. He's talking about Christian living, how we live as disciples, practicing our righteousness. And he's referring there to the inner attitude, the inner desire to give the Lord our heart. He's already talked there, and you'll see this in the passage, about almsgiving, the fact that when we give, It should be done in secret where we don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. And now he goes on to prayer and he focuses here on the temptation that is around those disciples to be men who desire to be seen praying. Now, why does he make an issue of that? Well, you can imagine that these disciples, these men, and even all within the Jewish community have grown up under what system? the pharisaical religious system of the day, where the men who are meant to be closest to God stand in the markets and pray, desiring for people to see them. They do all that they do to draw attention to themselves. And perhaps the disciples are looking on thinking, wow, if only I could be like that man. Look at how he stands there. Look at how everyone looks up to him and wants to be like him. That's true religion. That's what it means to be a minister of God. I wonder if Jesus was aware of that and needed to remove that rubbish from their life and replace it with true worship. And I believe that the disciples battled with that pride and that temptation just as you and I do. And don't we see it all the way through the Gospels, the disciples uh, being unwilling to wash one another's feet? Uh, fighting to see who could sit on Jesus' left and right hand in the kingdom. It really wasn't until the coming of the Holy Spirit, until they were crushed in ministry, that God opened their eyes and broke their hearts and caused them to realize what it meant to be a true worshiper of Christ, a disciple of Christ. So how do we guard against this? How do we guard against this? Well, really the first place to start is to be aware of the man-centered prayer life that exists. right? And that's our first point. We need to define the man-centered prayer life and turn from it. You can't run from something if you don't know what something is. right? So we need, we need to define that. And that's what Jesus does for us here in the passage regarding the Pharisees. Really, you could think of it this way, that we do not battle just against flesh and blood, do we? We have the enemy of our souls seeking to destroy us, seeking to make us like Pharisees. Matthew Henry said it this way, Hypocrites do the devil's drudgery in Christ's uniform. You get that? 
Hypocrites do the devil's drudgery in Christ's uniform. Now we think about it and we think of, okay, well, how does the enemy of our souls work? We know that he, he works through false religion, right? He works through false religion where truth is distorted, perverted, and shelved and replaced with something kind of similar, but yet not the same. That's what he does. And we think that his work is primarily in uh, theologically unsound churches. But he works in theologically sound churches as well, where Christianity is strong, where the truth of the Word of God is proclaimed, and he knows that he can't dislodge that truth in that congregation. Why? Because the elders are united in theology, the people are united, they're grounded, they're immovable, they're unshakable, but he has a plan B. He has a plan B. If he can't dislodge truth, what does he do? He turns those solid, sound, theological believers into hypocrites. He gets them to, yes, proclaim the word of God, that's fine. But secretly, privately, dislodge that intimate life with Christ to get you off your knees, to stop you being a worshipper. And at first, when this happens, we, we don't really feel the full effects because the preaching or the teaching or the life group leading or the women's ministry leading, it still goes on and it still bears fruit. But in time, in time, this coldness will come into your soul. A dissatisfaction with the ministry, a, a loss of love for the Lord, amnesia and spiritual um, um, sustenance is driven from your life. That's what happens. And in the end, what happens to the believer? Well, he's, he's bankrupt. He's useless for the kingdom of God. And that's what the devil does. That's how he works. His job, effectively, in religious circles is to turn sound, theologically sound people into hypocrites. And that was the Jews of the day. Because, yes, we could say on the one hand, some of their theology was a bit twisted, it wasn't quite correct, but by and large, they did understand truth, right? They did understand the, the, the truth of the Word of God. They had the Word of God, they proclaimed it, they preserved the physical copy of the Scriptures, but they were what? Par excellence, the greatest hypocrites ever. That's who they were. And you know what? Again, the same is true today. Hypocrisy is our greatest enemy. And think about what it does, and I've, I've just touched on it a little bit, but think about what hypocrisy does in the life of the Christian. It changes our affections. It changes our allegiances. And again, instead of what we were once doing for God and to God as an act of worship for Him alone, we now start to do things for what we get out of it, for what might give us praise or acknowledgement, a pat on the back. How do you tell when you're heading down that track? Well, when you do something and you don't get praised for it or thanked, how do you respond? But here, take a look at verse 5, and we need to get into this. Uh, Jesus addresses this, and he says in verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. You must not be like them. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward this phrase here when you pray what's the point of saying that well it, it's it's really uh it, jesus isn't saying if you pray or if you should happen to pray prayer here is assumed right A and it's assumed today because it was assumed back then prayer was a natural normal part of the jewish believer's life it was a part of Jewish religion, if I could say it that way. They were people who prayed. And I want to show you this in a moment. But the Jews prayed all the time. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I'll just kind of insert this here because it's a very interesting quote, to consider the Christian who doesn't pray. Uh, just as a general thing, to consider the Christian, the one who names the name of Christ, and how his life doesn't make sense. Right? And you'll see this unfold as we go forward. He says this, A prayerless church member is a hindrance. He is in the body like a rotting bone or a decaying tooth. 
Before long, since he does not contribute to the benefit of his brethren, he will become a danger and a sorrow to them. Neglect of private prayer is the locust which devours the strength of the church. See, back in the days of Jesus, prayer was assumed as just what the Jews did. Now today in the church, we're talking about hypocritical prayer. We're lucky sometimes if people are praying, right? We're lucky if that happens. Uh, Spurgeon just says that just should never happen. It's assumed it must happen. It's an oxymoron if, if there's someone who names the name of Christ, but he doesn't pray. It's a contradiction in terms so Jesus here really is assuming that his own disciples are, are men of prayer and that the ladies present are women of prayer. But let's just have a, a little background look at the, the Jewish perspective of prayer. I want to just help you to see what went on back then some 2,000 years ago. William Barclay has some wonderful insights into the, the prayer life of the common Jew. And I'll read a few quotes to you. Um, Prayer essentially had become some sort of ritualized thing amongst the Jews. And obviously, when you remove the heart, it becomes formality. That's the inevitable result, right? Um, he says here, such prayers could be given with almost no attention being paid to what was said. They were a routine, semi-conscious religious exercise. Uh, now, I'll just stop there. I can remember a number of years ago being in a prayer meeting with a bunch of uh, men from a totally different denomination. I'm not sure how I ended up there, but we were all praying and, and it was my turn to pray. And I started praying and I said, Lord, I want to give you... And, and I'd said three words and they're saying, yes, that's right. I affirm that. That's fantastic. And I'm praying and I'm thinking, I haven't actually said anything that's a cognitive sentence. You can't affirm something that hasn't been said and, and what, what's happening there? Um, it, it's, it's a habit. It's a pattern. You're not listening to what I'm saying. You're just saying things, you know. And, and so we have that kind of thing today. And I was just scratching my head like, what's going on here? Listen to what I'm saying and then respond. <laughs> but anyway, that's as an aside. But the Jews were similar. This was a habit. This was a pattern. It was formality. Um, prayers would be prayed with no attention given to what was said. The Shema, uh, according to Deuteronomy 6, uh, was to be recited uh, twice a day. So Deuteronomy 6 is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It was to be recited twice a day, early in the morning and at night. So before 9 a.m. and before 9 p.m. That's what the Jews had to do. Uh, one of the most popular prayers of the Jews was the Shemone Isra. Uh, and Barclay says this, the law was that the Jew must recite it three times a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon, and once in the evening. And he says this, The repetition of the Shemone Isra became nothing more than the superstitious incantation of a spell. Right? That's what it became. He also says that there were prayers for certain occasions. Quote, There were prayer... There was prayer before and after each meal. There were prayers in connection with the light, the fire, the lightning, on seeing the new moon, comets, rain, tempest, at the sea side of the sea, lakes, rivers, on receiving good news, on using new furniture, on entering or leaving a city. Everything had its prayer. You can see how this is kind of an incantation amongst the Jews. Um, obviously, some of these things were set up with good intentions, to, to possibly have them never forgetting God or God's ways. But he goes on and says, The trouble about any system lies not in the system, but in the men who use it. A man may make any system of prayer an instrument of devotion or a formality glibly and unthinkably to be gone through. So here you have, in a nutshell, the, the average person's Jewish life. This is just what went on. This is what they did. And you can imagine if your heart is truly detached from God and you have to jump through all of these hoops, your heart very quickly becomes very, very hard. Very, very hard. And here, and I think what Jesus is referring to is that prayer which was to be offered at uh, 9 a.m., midday, and then in the afternoon. And really the, the thought here was that, was that no matter where you were, 
no matter what you were doing, you were to stop and spend that time in prayer with God. I believe it was an hour of prayer. That's what they were to do. Verse 5, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Notice the intentionality of the hypocrite here. In light of the fact that prayer was uh, to be done wherever you happen to be at the time, stop, pray. But notice the intentionality of the hypocrite here. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Do we think it's just uh, a chance that every time it was the hour of prayer, they just happened to be in the marketplace on the street corner where people could see them and they were forced again to pray? Oh, here I am again. I'm in the market. Oh, it's the hour of prayer. Oh, well, fancy that, you know, same thing every day. I better pray. It's all about drawing attention to themselves. The very fact that these men love to be seen by other men means that they deliberately made the choice to be in that place at that hour so that they could be seen by all men. That's what happens when you love to be seen by people. Now this, just to to clarify this, this was not a, a public prayer that Jesus was commanding people to do. And that time where they had to pray three times a day, it wasn't a corporate time of prayer. It was a personalized prayer time. That's what he's talking about. So here we have these Jewish religious leaders turning this into a very public spectacle. They were meant to, as we'll see in a moment, go into their inner room and pray privately to their God, between God and themselves. But they had turned this into a public spectacle. They did not want to be seen by God, but they wanted to be seen by men. Listen to Matthew 23, verses 4 to 7. Again, Jesus brings home this truth regarding the Pharisees. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. And we know this is true of the Pharisees. And it's to us, it makes us cringe, doesn't it? that someone would have that desire to be seen and to be loved um, by others. But again, verse 6, what does Jesus say? Do not be like them. You go into your inner room and be alone with God and pray to your God privately. That is what he is talking about here. And we think about this concept of hypocritical prayer and you look and you think, wow, what a, what a travesty, how terrible it is that these men are, are wanting to be seen by others and not God. We probably don't understand the full extent of how diabolical that is. Right? Let me just run through a few points with you. A few travesties as to why hypocritical prayer is so horrible. Well, think of it this way. Their prayers aren't heard. right? So they are making prayers to God and they likely think that God is hearing and God is answering. But in reality, theologically, because their motive is to be heard and seen by men, it's sin, right? They have sinful motives. They're not concerned about God. So when they pray to God, God does not hear. Isaiah 59.2 But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. So your sin has made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Right? So here we have these men, hypocrites, loving the praise of men, not really concerned about what God thinks, thinking and deceiving themselves that God is hearing them, that God is blessing them, that God is answering. A a second point to make is this they are actually causing all of those people around them to adore them, praise them, instead of God. Now, what's the job of a shepherd? It's to do this. Don't look at me. Look at God. Look at Christ. You know, we're meant to kind of fly under the radar, so to speak, but be pointing people to Christ. That was the religious leaders of the day. That was their job, was to exalt God and glorify God, not themselves. So here, God is robbed of worship, praise, and honor. Completely robbed. We know that our Lord, our God, does not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42, 
8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. No wonder Jesus was furious with these men. It was about them bringing glory to themselves. And not only that, they were not servants of the people. They were not shepherds. They used and abused and took advantage of their position to gain power, money, fame, all of those things. A third point. The other point that they are, the other thing they are doing here is really modeling and teaching a pharisaical type of hypocrisy, right? They are modeling and teaching that. As I said at the start, Jesus was aware that his own disciples were likely coming under the influence of these men, but all people were. All people were thinking that this is true religion to be able to stand up there and pray like that man, listen to him, look at him. They were likely very theatrical. Uh, I know now that the, the Jews kind of do this. and um, you know, it's, They were likely very theatrical and wanted to be seen, so made themselves seen. It's a very interesting thing to consider. People looking on and learning, false way to worship, a wrong way to worship, externally focused worship. Matthew 23, 15, again, Jesus pronounces a woe on these men. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. He wasn't out there to win friends and influence people, was he? Jesus was speaking the truth. What was the point of that? Those watching on, those learning from those Pharisees were, were worse than they were in the end. What a terrible, terrible thing to happen. But the other side of this is that there is no reward from God, right? There is no reward from God. Number one, he doesn't hear. Number one, he's furious with them. They're under his judgment and condemnation, and there is no reward. There is no benefit for you when you pray like these hypocrites. Jesus says in verse 5, look at it. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. The reward wasn't from God. What was their reward? It was the praise of man. Wow. I mean, would you rather the praise of God, the future reward of God in his kingdom, or a few people rallying around you telling you how wonderful you are or that you pray magnificently and all of those things? They took the cheaper option. They, they chose rather to drink out of a dirty pool of water than from the spring of life. That's what these men did. They received the, their reward in full. This is the greatest insult to our God, is it not? It is the greatest slap in his face. Listen to this. Thomas Adams, who was, I guess, described as the Shakespeare of the Puritans, he, he spoke of probably what is the mindset and belief of these Pharisees regarding God. Listen to this. The hypocrite certainly is a secret atheist. The hypocrite certainly is a secret atheist. For if he did believe there was a God, he dare not be so bold as to deceive him to his face. Right? That makes sense. How can you believe there is a God and then be a hypocrite like that? You can't. You can't. And I think that makes complete sense. So that's the hypocrisy defined. That's the, the wrong model that we are to avoid, identify, and turn from that. We are to turn away from that. And I know that you and I generally don't make a show of it. You and I generally are probably never going to be tempted with standing on the street corner and, and praying and drawing people to ourselves. That's probably not where we struggle. But where we would struggle with is that we are in church. We're committed to ministries, uh, different groups and things like that, prayer ministry, uh, outreach, life groups, preaching, whatever it may be, where we will struggle to be tempted is by removing that inner worship of God on our knees with our Bibles open. You see, we look at hypocrisy and we think, oh, Pharisees, everyone look at me, but it's more subtle than that in our circles. Because when you get off your knees and neglect the inner worship of God in the quiet of your heart, but then focus on doing all the things you've only ever done, you become a hypocrite as well. Right, So that is what we need to watch out for. And that is what we need to turn from. 
I want to bring you to the second point, and that is this. In order to, to pray in a way that pleases our Heavenly Father, and that's what we're talking about, we must define the God-centered prayer life and embrace, embrace it, the opposite. Define the God-centered prayer life. What does it look like? What are we to do before God? Look at verse 6. I read this earlier. But when you pray, but when you pray, it's by contrast here, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. Right? Go into your Father, go into your room and pray to your Father who is in secret. The instruction's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, you don't need to be a, an engineer or a rocket scientist to understand this. It's very, very simple. A child can understand this. Uh, and, and really, the principle here is similar to almsgiving. That worship that you offer to God is to be a, a, a heartfelt, a heart-ordained uh, thing that comes first and foremost from your soul to God, not for other people to see, but first and foremost for God and to God alone. It's that as unto the Lord idea that we are to have with regards to worship. And really this idea of going into your inner room, it's about being alone with God. It's making sure that you are alone, that no one else is there. And really what that does for us is it helps us to prevent that hypocrisy. It helps us to prevent making a show of it. There is no benefit that comes to us from man because no one knows. That's what he's saying here. This is essentially the most secret of meetings. Praying to our God whom no one can see in a place where we ourselves cannot be seen except by God alone. That is the God-centered prayer life that we are called to have. And this is the person who is truly and deeply given over to God. No human reward, no human benefit, no one sees, no one knows, just God. Now when you find someone who is committed to that, then they are completely God's completely in every way listen to jc ryle of all the evidences of the real work of the spirit a habit of hearty private prayer is one of the most satisfactory that can be named now get this a man may preach from false motives a man may write books and make fine speeches and seem diligent in good works and yet be a judas iscariot and that's true he goes on and says, But a man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is serious. End quote. And you know what? I've kind of been thinking through this lately with a lot that's been going on in the world and even looking at my own life in the past. Those times where I have been struggling, those times where I've maybe wandered and strayed, I can look back on the, the previous two weeks and tell you straight away that I have not been on my knees, right? That's what happens. You can't be devoted to God privately in worship and prayer and at the same time be living for the flesh and the world. It doesn't happen. See, when you start living for the world and for the flesh, you immediately get off your knees. And really, anyone who's ever fell, anyone who's ever been caught in sin, you will find that common denominator that they have not been men or women of prayer privately. So we could flip that the other way and pull something out of it and say, well, that is a safeguard. If you're battling with the flesh, if you're struggling with temptation, if you're feeling as though you're drifting from the Lord, devote yourself to being a private worshipper of God in your own heart, in your own family, and in your own life. That's one of the solutions, isn't it? That's one of the solutions. I love the fact here that um, it says here in verse 6, and your father who sees in secret will reward you uh, and really here the reward is not specified um, and it ultimately points to the future that time in the millennial kingdom where christ returns and is reigning on this earth as king and high priest for a thousand years and it tells us in scripture that at his coming there is the um the the judgment that christ in enacts where he essentially gifts his disciples and believers with very specific rewards um, that's what happens and that's what we look forward to. Um, Matthew nineteen twenty seven, Peter picks up on this and he essentially asks the question, well, you know, we've given up everything to follow you. What kind of will be ours? Um, and I think he means that well, not in a, hey, what's in it for me kind of way. Listen to what he says. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? 
Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now that's a reference to those immediate twelve disciples, right? But look at what he says. He expands that list of people who will be with him in that kingdom. And he says in verse 29, And everyone, that's all believers, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So that's... And without going into the whole message on rewards, which I'd love to do, but that's it in a nutshell. God is a God of gracious graciousness. Uh, a, a day's pay for a day's labor. That's a concept all through Scripture. God rewards his children for their faithfulness, for their devotion, for their love and their sacrifice. That's just what he does. But what we need to realize is this, that there is, yes, a, a future blessing. There is a future reward coming our way. And, and we know and understand that we will be in his presence. We will be given eternal life. We'll be given transfigured bodies, which is suited for all eternity, which will never fail or corrupt or be weak in any way at all. And we will be glorified in that way and enjoy that wonderful relationship with him. But there are wonderful blessings, wonderful rewards that come to us here and now when we obey Christ in this area and choose to pray from the depth of our being. And it's something I want to just walk through with you now. And the reality is we don't often see the immediate blessings of, of privately praying to our Lord. We just don't. We don't often focus on these things. Uh, we don't recognize that there, this is where the battle is won. You know, we get very busy doing this and doing that and uh, being involved in ministry, but we fail to see that this is where the battle is won. And you know what we also think? We think, okay, we're in church life and there's this ministry to establish and, and that ministry and we've got to get this going. And we think, okay, it's the go-getters in church that get things happening and get things done. The movers and the shakers, the, the, the mature ones, the strong ones, the ones who can be there. But then the prayer ministry, what do we do there? We, we leave that and we relegate that to the dear old little ladies who, you know, they can't get up and do this and they can't get up and do that. You just come to the prayer meeting and faithfully pray. That's how people view church life and essentially prayer, right? It's relegated to that mundane task that people who can't do, do, if I can say it that way. Now, I know none of you believe that, but in church life, we're all tempted to believe that. And again, you ask the question, who is it who comes to prayer meetings often? Very interesting. Ian Bounds said it this way, Public prayers are of little worth unless they are founded on or followed up by private praying. Public prayers are of little worth unless they are founded on or followed up by private praying. The reality is everything we do, unless it's followed up or has as its foundation private prayer, is pretty worthless, pretty useless in a sense. Really, this time of prayer is the most blessed time for us. And you would know this, that the Lord, by his grace, drives us to that time of prayer. It's where he has our complete and undivided attention. It's that place where we pour our hearts out to God, our burdens, our struggles, our joys, everything comes out. And sometimes there are things which we just can't share with a person. Or a person will not understand no matter who they are, but our God sees, our God knows, and we can pour it all out before him and lay our heart out before our God. And he's the one who cares. He's the one who knows. That private time of prayer is often where not only our affections change, but first and foremost, our thinking and our perspective changes. Think of all of the Psalms. I kind of relate a lot to Psalm 73. The psalmist comes in, and, and you see this in many psalms. He comes in um, envious of the wicked. The, everything they do, they prosper. Everything goes well. And the psalmist looks at himself. Everything I do is hard. It's like I'm wearing concrete boots. Everything's hard and difficult. But the wicked, they have it easy. And he begins to grumble and complain and, and even question God. 
And then all of a sudden he remembers God and his eyes are open and he responds and says, I was like a brute beast before you. I was ignorant. I was foolish. And he responds because his perspective is changed and he begins to worship God and praise God and everything is sorted out correctly. That's what that private personal time of prayer does. There's also something very interesting. Uh, John 15, and sorry, I'm not sure how we're going for time, if there is a limit or not, but um, I'll just keep going until someone starts leaving. But, um, you know, I can't help thinking of John 15. In that wonderful parable of the vine and the branches, Jesus tells us that his father is the vine dresser. He himself is the vine, we are the branches, and the father comes along and he dresses that vine. He, he cuts off what is um, redundant, what is not bearing fruit. He prunes it. Why? So that it will bear more fruit. And really, you and I know this very well, that our God is a sovereign God. He's in control of every single circumstance in your life and my life, the good, the bad. And at times he brings things into our life that we don't really appreciate or enjoy. And we look and we think, well, Lord, that is not going to help me. How can that help me? And then at times he takes things out of our life, which we're trying to hold on to because we think we need it and it's good for us. Right? So God is in control of our circumstances. And what he does is frustrates our plans at times. He makes life, allows life to be difficult, and sometimes he makes it difficult to get us to get on our knees and pray. And I, I, Wes, you would agree with this as a pastor. Um, I need to be on my knees. And if there is no difficulty, if there is no hardship, if there is no persecution or suffering or pain or, or whether it's lack of money or bad health or whatever it is, I will get up off my knees and I will begin to exalt myself. That's the nature of the human heart. As believers, we need hardship. We need that difficulty in life because it drives us to our knees. And when we are on our knees, it is in that place that we find the strength and grace of God. Right? That's how it works. And in a sense, that's a message for another time. But we understand that, don't we? You and I cannot and must not just press through those moments when we're in the valley with sheer human strength, uh, for we are led to that valley by God. Why? That we might learn to remain there, to be still before God in prayer, to be renewed, to be strengthened, to be lifted up. And I know many years ago I went through probably the most difficult time of my life. And I was so acutely aware that I must respond in a God-honoring way because I don't want the things that were coming into my life to be as a result of my own stupidity or my own sin. And I wasn't perfect, but I tried very hard to honor God with my responses and my reactions. But the intensity of the moment, of the situation, drove me to my knees, caused me to cry out and pour my heart out to God. And it's there that I met with the grace, the love, the mercy of our God and my God that I've never experienced before. And I would do it all over again just for that moment just for that experience of having a broader and richer and deeper understanding of who God is. He's a wonderful God. He's a wonderful God. So the prayer closet, the prayer closet is where the battle is won. Again, I said it before, but all of our service to God, think of what you do in this church, in your families, as a, maybe a father, a mother, um, your work, your employment, all that you do, you're praying to the lost. Uh, sorry, you're praying for the lost. You're evangelizing. You want all these wonderful things to happen. Where are those battles won? They're won first in prayer. So what happens if we don't pray? Can we expect the blessings of God to um, f- cause us to bear fruit in those areas? We can't. We can't. John fifteen five. Abide in me and my words abide in you. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. And it's funny, I often talk about this, but we read through the Old Testament and we see the nation of Israel going out into battle against the Philistines or the Canaanites or whoever it is. And there's a a, sort of a certain formula and pattern that emerges. And that is this, that when they first go to God before battle and pray to him and sacrifice and do all that he desires for them to do, they win the battle, right? And when they don't do those things, they lose the battle. And we look on and we think, what is wrong with you people? Your brother, your, your, your best friend is going to be slaughtered in battle. Let's seek God. Who would be so foolish to not seek God? But what do we do? 
We evangelize. I sit down and spend 15, 16 hours, 20 hours preparing a message and all of these things. And we, do, we work so hard for the kingdom of God. But if we don't pray, then we are just as stupid as they are. Right? You see that secret private prayer? It battles the autonomy of our souls. And you could think about it this way. We battle the world, the flesh and the devil. And we can work very hard at battling oppression, affliction and fighting here and fighting there and doing all of these things. We battle temptation, pride, lust, envy, all of those things. We battle with those. But the greatest battle that you and I will face is against our own flesh when it calls us up up off our knees out of that prayer closet. That's the greatest battle, right? And the devil knows that. If he can stop you from praying privately to God, then he's won. All of your efforts, all of your work, he'll let you go. He'll let you do that. Because apart from Christ, we can do nothing. I love, um, I get one of these devotionals by Oswald Sanders, uh, my utmost for his highest, it's called, and it comes in through email. And he had this wonderful little uh, section that I, I want to read to you now. And um, he's talking about the missionary, which by extension is all of us in a sense. And he says it this way. The challenge to the missionary does not come from the fact that people are difficult to bring to salvation, that backsliders are difficult to reclaim, or that there is a barrier of callous indifference, right? And we're all used to that. No, the challenge comes from the perspective of the missionary's own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because let's think about it. Your evangelism. Who turns the heart of that person you're witnessing to? It's not you. It's not me. When you're leading Bible studies, who causes the lights to come on in that young believer's mind so that he understands? It's not you. It's not me. All our labors, God is the one who works. And if we are not praying, if we're not seeking his face, then we can't expect fruit in our lives. And yes, God will work in spite of us. But he'll generally choose someone else who is a prayerful person to work through. But God is gracious and he does work in spite of us. The warrior of God must be first and foremost a prayer warrior. And think about this. This is wonderful. This means that you can be God's strongest warrior, God's strongest general, sergeant, and also at the same time be a 90-year-old lady. Get that? You can do the most for the kingdom of God by being the weakest in the kingdom of this world. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. We have dear old ladies at church, some are in their mid-90s, and one lady in particular says, I don't know why the Lord still has me here, and you know, I just sort of feel like I'm of no use. But she's a prayer warrior. And it's like, I know why you're here. You're doing what the 25-year-old men don't, or the 30-year-old men don't. You're the one who is being strong for us. And really, that's that idea of what Paul says in in Scripture. When I am weak, then I am strong. George Mueller, many of you will know him as that man of prayer. And and I'll finish with this illustration. The man of prayer who um, basically asked for no money. He was someone who ran an orphanage. There was such a need in in the UK at the time. And um, he ran a, a wonderful orphanage, wonderful children he had to look after. He had no money and he never asked for money. His commitment was to pray for all things because he believed that God would provide for him. Now, there's one instance where uh, he set off on a ship and he had to go to a particular destination. And I want to read that account to you with his engagement with the, the unbelieving captain of the ship. Listen to this. The mule set off for the United States in August 1877 on aboard the Sardian off Newfoundland, the weather turned cold and the ship's progress was seriously retarded by the fog. The captain had been on the bridge for 24 hours when something happened which was, which was to revolutionise his life. George Mueller appeared on the bridge. Captain, I have come to tell you I must be in Quebec by Saturday afternoon. It is impossible, said the captain. Very well, said Mueller. If your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. I have never broken an engagement for 52 years. Let us go down into the chat room and pray. The captain wondered which lunatic asylum Mueller had come from. (laughs) Mr. Mueller, he said, do you know how dense this fog is? No, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. 
Mueller then knelt down and prayed simply. When he had finished, the captain was about to pray, but Mueller put his hand on his shoulder and told him not to. First, you do not believe he will. And second, I believe he has. And there is no need whatever for you to pray about it. The captain looked at Mr. Mueller in amazement. Captain, he continued, I have known my Lord for 52 years and there has never been a single day that I have failed to get an audience with the king. Get up, captain, and open the door and you will find the fog is gone. The captain walked across the door and opened it. The fog had lifted. It was the captain himself who later told the story of this incident and was subsequently described by a well-known evangelist as one of the most devoted men I ever saw. So here you have the captain who is converted by what he just witnessed, a man of prayer who did not doubt. The, the quote goes on and says, It is not enough to begin to pray nor to pray aright, nor is it enough to continue to pray for a time, but we must, be, must patiently, believingly continue in prayer until we obtain an answer. And further, we have not only to continue in prayer until the end, but we also have to believe that God does hear us and will answer our prayers. Now, you know, you probably know a little bit about George Mueller. Some of you may know a lot, but really, during his years, there were many amazing things that happened. Uh, and I'll, let me read this to you. During the last year of Mr. Mueller's life, among the gifts for the feeding of the orphans recorded were um, 7,203 loaves of bread, 5,222 buns, 20 boxes of soap, 9 tons of coal, 26 haunches of venison, 112 rabbits, 312 pheasants, 5 bags of oatmeal, 26 cases of oranges, 5 boxes of dates, 4,000 pounds of meat along with hundreds of items. Additionally, he prayed for the financial needs of the orphan houses and had during the course of his lifetime received over $2.5 million, always making his requests known only to God. Now that was his conviction. $2.5 million is a lot of money back in 1877. God answered all the time, every time. He's a wonderful man of prayer who simply trusted and believed God. Again, I'll ask this question. Do you serve God in the local body of believers? Do you lovingly lead your family? Men, do you sacrificially love your wives as Christ loved the church? Do you evangelize the lost? Do you preach and teach the word? Again, to be doing any and all these things and other things without first being a person of prayer is to tie your own hands of the blessing of God. Is it not? I pray that this has been an encouragement, but also a warning to realize our enemy would love nothing more for you to get off your knees and to get busy to be a Martha instead of a Mary. I pray that this is an encouragement. I pray that you will see and understand and that I will see and understand the, the, the necessity of a personal private prayer life where we worship our God and praise our God from the depth of our being. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the fact that you are the one who actively works in our lives to, to drive out hypocrisy, to cause us to be men, women and children who love you from the depth of our being with joy, uh, peace and happiness, serving you faithfully. And Father, it's so easy for us to get busy. It's so easy for us to serve and run here and run there, but then to neglect you. Uh, to, uh, to neglect our own private worship of you in prayer, in your word, studying, reading and obeying. Father, I pray that you would drive that out of our hearts continually. And Father, if it ever begins to creep in because of our neglect, may you correct us, may you discipline us and may you set us again on that right path. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.